Hi, I'm Lauren from Cincinnati. I'm David from New York. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like me and you if you support it. If you'd like to support the show like I did, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. I'm Jesse Thorne, live on tape from my house in Los Angeles. It's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program is one of the great talk show hosts of all time, Dick Cavett. He won three Emmy Awards for his uh, shows both on ABC and on PBS. And these days he spends a fair amount of his time as a blogger columnist for the New York Times. Uh, Some of his favorite pieces written for the Times have now been collected in Dick Cavett Talk Show. And I I learned in the book that I I would be remiss to introduce him without also mentioning uh, that he was state pommel horse champion of uh, the great state of Nebraska. Absolutely. Mr. Cavett, welcome to The Sound. Gosh, thank thank you for that. I don't know a lot about pommel horse. What? And most of what I know about pommel horse comes from watching this movie called Gymkata. Uh, which which starred Olympic champion Kurt Thomas and bore the slogan, Gymnastic Skills, Karate Kills. Yes, yes, yes. You know, I have yet to see that, and I I want to, because anywhere there's a pommel horse, or (laughs) for historians, in those days, for some reason, it was called the side horse. And uh, about the time gymnastics became the hottest sport in the country that one fabulous olympics year when everybody just went mad for gymnastics um it had become the pommel horse there's a scene in gymkata where uh kurt thomas he's playing the most dangerous game it's a complicated story the setup but anyway what's important is he's in the village of the crazies uh-huh. And he's running from various crazies. I mean, there's literally dozens of crazies. Yeah. They're assaulting him from all sides. He's, we have that in New York, but go ahead. <laughs> he's running through the streets. He comes to the town square, and he looks around, and he realizes because he's in the town square, the crazies are coming from every street surrounding him, and there's nowhere for him to escape. Luckily, and here's the good news, Mr. Cabot, yeah. there's a pommel horse in the town square by happenstance. I would never would have guessed that. And luckily, he happens to have both gymnastic skills and karate kills. Yeah. So he utilizes the pommel horse in a three to four minute action sequence to dispatch with all the crazies. With his legs and his high scissors and his uh, triple rear dismount leg moves and that sort of thing. Yeah, the whole nine yards, all of those yeah. things that you just said. And in, in simpler terms, he kicks them while pommel horsing. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I did a little of that too, but it wasn't intended. <laughs> um, so when you were growing up in uh, in Nebraska, I, I have a hard time imagining people who um, people who aspire to high academic achievement, as you must have. You you went to Yale for uh, college, mm-hmm. um, and also aspiring to show business. Um, wait, yeah. was, was show business like in your vocabulary when you were a teenager? Oh, yes, sure. Um, first of all, I read Theater Arts, a magazine now defunct, but a wonderful magazine for people who were <clears throat> queer for the arts uh, in Nebraska. And I was and read it avidly. And then I 
found variety at the drugstore once. Somebody had mistakenly delivered variety instead of uh, Midwest Sunshine Journal or something. <laughs> and I, I, I discovered variety. And then uh, big shows and big people came to Lincoln, Nebraska. Did your, did your family have a TV set when you were a teenager? Yes. The coaxial cable, that was the term I kept hearing. Wait till, someday we'll get the coaxial cable. I said, can't we get a TV set? There's stuff on something. No, we got to wait for the coaxial cable. So we couldn't get Milton Berle. My first time we had television in Lincoln. Finally, my father broke down. We bought a set. Got to see Burl, but better got to see in the first week of having a television set, the Army McCarthy hearings. <laughs> and that was thrilling. You write that you were obsessed with uh, Jack Parr. Yeah. What was it that, what was, it that was so compelling about uh, him and his show? Well, I have almost a set piece on this subject. Um, Jack had an electric electronic electric personality unlike any I've known before since that just worked when it was when a television camera was pointed at it microphone of course and I can't really say what it, it consisted of a brilliant wit high intelligence neurotic uh, factors that made him almost you almost didn't want to leave the room. Well, I, I can give you a quote from the great British critic Kenneth Tynan. I first met him years ago, and I said, what, what, what is it about Parr? And he said, it's that factor in him that if he's on the screen with someone else, you never take your eyes off Jack for fear of missing a live nervous breakdown on your home screen. <laughs> and a great wit. And now, here's Jack. They're very kind. You have no idea how humble that makes a big star like me feel. <laughs> you, you wrote for him very early in your career. Yeah, he started me. You were working at, um, if I remember correctly, correct me if I'm wrong, Time Magazine. And I will correct you if you're wrong, but in this instance, you're absolutely right on. I was a copy boy at Time Magazine. What gave you the idea, I mean, the temerity to write some jokes, put them in an envelope, and deliver them to the offices of his show? What made you think that that would work? Why did I think it would work? I'm not sure I did. I must have just thought it might, and everything fell into place, including his happening to be coming toward me down the hall at the very moment I got off the elevators and was coming toward him. Were you scared about doing it? I don't remember being, no. I just remember thinking, this might be a good idea, and if not, I'll be laughing about it someday. You wrote for a lot of uh, great comics and television programs um, earlier in your career, and, and at the same time, yeah. you were... Um, working uh, part-time as a, a stand-up comic. Yep. Um, and one of the things about stand-up comedy is that it requires a certain distinctiveness of voice. And hmm. I, 
I get the impression that it was a struggle for you, someone who was uh, facile with, you know, writing for the voices of others to yeah. figure out who you were on stage. Oh, yes. In that sense of voice. Yeah. The, the, it's called com- finding your comic voice, I guess. Um, what do I come off as? Wh- what do I go out there playing? You know, a hick, um, a foreigner, uh someone physically weird in some way, uh, wrong number of years. Uh, what, what am I? What am I? And Mr. Woody Allen had warned me that this would be the toughest part, that I could actually make myself unpopular on the par staff because I was the kid of as soon as I heard some subjects Jack wanted or knew which ones he'd have to talk about that night, I could fill two to three pages at typing speed and uh, take him down to him. And I, some, a friend on the staff said, you might wait a little bit. Some of the other guys are getting a little uneasy because they were 20 years older than I was. What was your first chance to be an on-air host? Ooh. Uh, oh, I know. Um, way back, producing Woody Fraser put together a show called The Star and the Story. And it wasn't a bad idea. It was 30 minutes a day, five days a week. And you got a star who did not mind, kind of a this is your life in a way, got a star and you told his story in installments. We got the great Van Johnson, which was lucky. And so we followed through his movie career and uh, his 120 movies or whatever from the ones I watched as a sub-teen in Nebraska up through a Woody Allen film, Van Johnson. I remember Woody saying once, my God, I just suddenly said to myself, I'm directing Van Johnson. Um, Huge star, nice man. They didn't like the show, the network. A pilot is what it was, and the pilot had pilot error, apparently, uh, (laughs) because uh, they chucked it, but they liked the young man who hosted it and decided to try me on the daytime talk show, and that's what happened. You had worked pretty extensively behind the camera as a writer, and you'd worked pretty extensively on stage at that point as a comic. What did you not expect about the job of being in front of the camera when you got it? Well... I think one thing I didn't expect was how hard it would be. On the other hand, I wasn't brimming with confidence that I could do it. But how hard it would be had to do with sitting there and the concentration. It can also be hard because of idiocies on the network's part and people who get things done badly and um, witless columnists who don't get what you said and misquote it and... All those, those you expect all that, but the incredible tension of doing what looks so easy on the screen and what looks like two people chatting the way they might in their couch at home, but you're getting signaled and you've got time limits and the guest is getting odd, and somebody just held up a sign and took it away before you got to read it. And what could that mean? And am I on or off the air at this moment? And am I, are they trying to tell me I'm supposed to go to commercial? And what was it? Oh, God, what was it I was going to say to this guy 
whose lips have stopped moving so that it must be my turn to talk and I don't have any idea what he said. That isn't fun. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the iconic talk show host, Dick Cavett, known for his in-depth and conversational interviewing style. Here's a clip of him talking with Orson Welles, who actually turns the tables on him mid-interview. You've lived all over the place, all over the globe, and then you, for as long time when you were not in this country, then you suddenly came back. Oh, what opinion do you have of, of some of the uh, generalizations that are made about the country, that there's uh, oh, uh, something violent in the American character, for example, or that, well, there is. Or that the country's... I think there is, don't you? I think there right. always has been. Right? I think everything is true about people, just as it's true about America. We can do anything, anything vile and anything great. And all the generalizations are true and all of them are boring, as you must certainly have noted in the line of your work. Could I ask you about your work? (laughs) Could I interview you? Is it impertinent of my part? Well, let me tell you, it's frightening to meet a legend, and and I know that uh, it must be upsetting for you, too. And... uh, (laughs) I, uh, I know that half your life has been spent wanting to know about me, so shoot. Well, it seems like that's true, because I've been watching you an awful long time. In other words, the other night on the show, or not the other night, some weeks ago, I heard you say, to my distress, that you had once been an actor. Ah, yes. <laughs> now, I'm always sorry to hear anybody that I admire has been an actor. <laughs> There are those who were more immediately distressed than you were hearing it. What were you, like, m- most afraid of when you first s- sat down in the chair and had someone sitting next to you of enormous stature? Enormous stature never bothered me. In fact, it relaxed me, and it was easier for me to talk to Marlon Brando or Miss Hepburn or anyone. She didn't insist I call her Miss Hepburn. I talked to Kate. I changed voices there because once when I was talking to the great Cary Grant about possibly doing the show, and he said, Oh, Kate was so great on the show, and they'll find out how dumb I am. And I thought, Oh, Mr. Grant, <laughs> I said, You can only be so dumb. I mean, uh, and he laughed, fortunately. <laughs> but ne- never did the show. But um, the greater they were, you might say, the easier it was for me, because I was so glad to be with them, and I knew their work, and, and so on. Difficult ones were uh, middle-level people who you might not have been mad about, but I, I could almost always make a guest comfortable. I couldn't always make myself comfortable. Isn't that weird? I want to play a little clip of uh, Catherine Hepburn preparing to go on your show and, um, and and rearranging the furniture on your set with just this amazing combination of, uh, I don't know, fear, fear confidence, uh, arrogance, and grace. <laughs> that's, that's good. <laughs> when, she, when the stagehand says, well, if we're to do that, we'd have to unscrew the... Uh, don't tell me what's wrong, just fix it. Move it out. Yeah, this is heavier. That's better and better for feet, I think. This is what it would look like sitting there. Yes, that's better. That's all right. That's great. Yeah. Well, that carpet 
If anybody can survive that carpet. You can. We're doing well. <laughs> and I personally am going to dye it by tomorrow morning, I can tell you that. <laughs> Gee whiz. Or put a rug over it. Put I'll bring one. Well, whose idea was that? What color would you like? Well, I'd like no color. Just go into the nothing. Let us be the color. God knows I'm red enough in the face to but I clash with that. Maybe someone shows up in the shop. <laughs> Put something over it, you know, I mean something like and this. paint this dark brown. Don't laugh. No, it's true. Because I can do it. Oh, you do. <laughs> <laughs> that was what at the time seemed to me like a great idea. Maybe the only one I ever had about production of a show, and it was she wasn't certain she was going to do the show up to right up till the last, and in fact, the very day. In fact, in a phone conversation with her, she had said, well, if we do it, we can look at it, and if we don't like it, we'll just burn the tapes. And I thought, oh, yeah, great. <laughs> How many greenbacks are going to go whim- winging out the window when we do that? You imagine your conversation with the network where, wherein you, you explained to them that you did book Catherine Hedberg, and you did interview her. But then she, then you decided to burn the tapes. Yeah, that would have been a lovely moment. Um, don't even give me that to have a bad dream about in <laughs> retrospect. But what, what, what happened was I thought, look, she may not do it. She does whatever she wants to do. She always has. You have to admire that in her. And uh, since she is coming in, as no one ever has before, to check the chair, check the set, check the how it looks on the screen... Um, and she doesn't know television. Let's tape it secretly. And when she doesn't do the show, we'll have a souvenir at least. Your show had uh, uh, your shows, I should say, had, had a different tone than did um, Carson, and certainly than does most late night talk programming now. Um, mm. The tone was uh, very conversational and. Uh, I know that was one of your objectives, but I, I want to ask you about the relationship between um, the serious and the funny on the show. Um, yeah. I, I want to play a little clip of you introducing John Cleese on the show in, in I want to say, 1979. It was He was promoting uh, Life of Brian. And um, as he sits down, this is, this is what you said. Uh, John is either now going to be wildly funny... Uh, or occasionally funny, depending on how either of us feels. Uh, that, that has to be a problem for any... So most <laughs> late-night talk shows these days have segment producers whose job it is to wheedle out of a guest a couple of great punchlines, no matter who they are, and then deliver to the host setups to those punchlines, um, whether they're narrative or joke jokes. I know what you mean, yeah. You had a lot of really funny people on your show and didn't really demand that they be funny. Uh, this is true. Um, and it was nice when they were. You can't always count on it. But that that sort of what sounds like mechanical preparation uh, for a show, when done by a brilliant Booker, talent coordinator, segment producer, those are the various names that have evolved. It makes for great television. Jack Parr had a guy named Tom O'Malley. He would say, now, you're, you're, you're a, a dentist, and, and uh, 
we have an interesting story, but that thing you told me, tell it exactly the way you did. Don't say, and then he said. Just do this sentence, and then give his sentence, and they'll know whose it is. And the distance, Tom knew, between the two had to be short. And he could beautifully coach people who, who, to their own mystification, came off wonderfully and never came off that well again on anybody else's (laughs) show. So there's a great way of handling and preparing a guest. It really is, though, a performance and not just a conversation. And in part, your job as the host was to support someone's performance in a funny way. That's an interesting insight that I'm not sure anybody else has ever made about that. Yes, it, it is true. There were times when you you knew you were becoming part of their act. I don't know what that is. I, I, there was another thing that went along with that that I did, and I've never tried to analyze it, but that made people at the end of a show say, I don't know how you got me to talk about that one thing. Or I never felt this comfortable in a talk show. Something in me knew what it felt like to be a guest I guess, because I began on talk shows as a guest on Merv, on Johnny. And I identified with them in a way that I knew what they were feeling at the time and could see it. Catherine Hepburn was nervous at first. The idea of Hepburn being nervous about anything seems strange. And when I could see that and saw her cheek twitch slightly on one side that's not seen on camera, it completely liberated me and thinking, gee, this... This poor kid needs my help. i got to get her through. <laughs> what turned out to be two 90-minute shows with 25 minutes left over. There's this wonderful um, Randy Newman song, one of my favorite songs, called Rednecks, that includes an allusion to you and uh, the Dick Cavett show. Right. There's this line in the beginning. The song is written from a character perspective. There's this line in the beginning... Uh, where he says, um, uh, I saw Lester Maddox on a TV show with some smart-ass New York Jew. Yeah. And the smart-ass New York Jew in this, in this case is you. And it's, it's a... Yeah. It's I a, am two out of three of those things. Last night I saw Lester Maddox on a TV show Some smart-ass New York Jew The Jew laughed at Lester Maddox audience laughed at less than Maddox, too. Well, he may be a fool, but he's our fool. If they think the better... They <laughs> it's a song from the perspective of, um, of essentially a, a Southern racist, but it, in some ways it's, it, it's in, in a funny way, a sympathetic song to that Southern racist. Uh-huh. And, um, and it's ultimately, I think, more satirical of, of you know, racism outside of that particular cultural context than anything else. Um, But what I thought was so remarkable about it is that it's a really perfect and tight distillation of that idea of someone feeling outside of the media world, the Uh insider's bubble. Um, Smart-ass people in the other world. And, yeah, and, and you know, you, for example, calling you a Jew, which you're not, is just, it's it's an expression of that fear of being outside of the bubble, just like people are, yeah. you know, people are fearful of 
you know, Jewish people controlling the world's banks or something like that. Do I have to sit here and be called a non-Jew? <laughs> <laughs> you strike me on, on television, having watched uh, many DVDs of your show, as being relatively fearless of being a smart-ass New York Jew. Yeah, I would say I am, uh, although I never decided in any way to be to be those any combination of those things. Um, it would just it, it came out. It was one thing. One thing I hadn't foreseen when I started doing a talk show was there will be controversy to deal with that might strike me and the audience in different ways. And I remember the first time it was happen- it happened, it was on the daytime show. It could have been in the first week of the daytime show, even. And Louis Neiser, a lawyer who wrote best-selling books about law cases that were f- interesting, uh, came on. And this was in 1968, and he began to be an apologist for the Vietnam War. And... I suddenly, the hair rose in the back of my neck. And I said, you spoke earlier about how much you admire Lyndon Johnson. Your friend Lyndon Johnson has said in, and I had the place, this is a war for Asian boys. Well, Mr. Neiser looked as if I had broken the rules of some game he had decided to play with me by disagreeing with him. I can extrapolate from my own experience as a broadcaster um, that you may have been accused of being pretentious. Uh-huh. Um, here I am, like, I'm I'm in public radio, the most pretentious medium that exists. Um, I do my show from my apartment, probably the least pretentious place to do it from, but I get more than my fair <laughs> share of accusations of pretension. And I imagine... What do they mean by it? That's what I, I want to know. I mean, I, I, I imagine that you must have caught some of that same flack, and I, I wonder how it, what you thought of it and how it affected you. I don't know. Uh, often you can put it down to the fact that the person saying it is a witless boob. <laughs> um <laughs> And I found that that works a lot of the times. There are various <laughs> forms of them. There are backwoods boobs who are really dumb, and there are those who don't get it. Sidney Perelman, the great wit, said to me once, writing to critics is a mug's game. I did once, though, before Mr. Perelman warned me, uh, the major TV critic for the New York Times wrote a inept and uh, misshapen column about two shows I had done with Orson Welles and Laurence Olivier, and I had said in, I objected and wrote to the Times, never expecting it to be published in the paper, <laughs> that maybe some of the readers might like to have heard, or reading the newspaper of record, might like to have known some of the things the guest said. Uh, and I quoted a quote that he had wrong. And a couple of... Well, I wrote this letter just for my own fun, mostly... <laughs> and Sunday, arts and leisure section, it was splattered six columns wide on the front page of the arts and leisure section. And I think the part that irked him most was at the end I said his prose has all the sparkle of a second mortgage. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, Mr. Cabot, I've taken up more than enough of your time, but I, I sure appreciate you uh, coming in to be on The Sound of Young America. Well, I didn't think you took up any of my time. I did all the talking. <laughs> <laughs> Dick Cavett. Talk Show is the name of his new book, which collects his columns for the New York Times website. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our music is provided to us by Dan Wally. Our producer is Julia Smith. Our editor, Nick White. You can find all of our programs online for free at MaximumFun.org, including our comedy talk show, Jordan, Jesse, Go, in addition to The Sound of Young America, and lots of other cool stuff. If you have thoughts about the show or you want to bring us out to perform at your local cabaret venue, I don't know why we would perform in a cabaret venue. Anyway, the moral of the story is you can email me at jesse at MaximumFun.org. Otherwise, we'll see you right here, same bat time, same bat channel. Bye-bye. The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com.